if your brain's not right, you're going to get nowhere. There are many roads to depression, like there are many roads to chest pain. Let's talk about what can cause people to have an unhealthy brain. Dr. Daniel Amen has helped millions of people change their brains and as a product, change their lives through Amen Clinics, his best-selling books, and public television programs. Now, Dr. Amen is one of America's leading psychiatrists and brain health experts. He stays busy. He has authored or co-authored nine professional book chapters, 85 scientific articles, and more than 40 books, including New York Times mega bestsellers, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. He has appeared on numerous television shows, including mine, Dr. Oz, The Doctors, Today Show, Good Morning America, and The View. His breakthrough public television programs on brain and mental health have aired more than 130,000 times across North America and have made him well-loved by millions of viewers seeking guidance on memory, attention, mood, nutrition, and everything else that has to do with the brain. Now, the Washington Post has called Dr. Dan Amen, quote, the most popular psychiatrist in America because of his books, media appearances, and clinics, which have over 8,500 patient visits a month. That's a lot of visits. Amen Clinics also have the world's largest database of functional brain scans. Now, hear what I just said. The largest database of functional brain scans in the entire world. These scans relate to behavior totaling nearly 180,000 patients from 155 countries. You've probably seen a lot of this research quoted by other experts because he is the go-to guy when figuring out a lot of brain function. Now, he's appeared in movies, including Quiet Explosions, After the Last Round, and The Crash Reel, and was a consultant for the movie Concussion, starring Will Smith. He's also appeared on the Emmy-winning show The Truth About Drinking. His work's been featured in Newsweek, Time, Huffington Post, ABC World News, 2020, BBC, London Telegraph, Parade Magazine, New York Times, New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, LA Times. It just goes on and on. You've heard me talk so much about being who you are on purpose. And Dr. Amen talks about doing that at the brain level. So I'll stop talking about who he is and talk to him. So, Dr. Amon, how are you today? I'm really wonderful for a pandemic. How are you, my friend? Well, I am doing well, and I am so intrigued by your book. And as I've said before, it has a very provocative title. The name of his book is The End of Mental Illness, How Neuroscience is Transforming Psychiatry, and helping prevent or reverse mood and anxiety disorders, ADHD, addictions, PTSD, psychosis, personality disorders, and more. But the main title is The End of Mental Illness. That is a provocative title. You're not mincing words there. What do you mean by the end of mental illness? I hate the term mental illness. I've been a psychiatrist 40 years now, and I've always hated it because it shames people. It's stigmatizing. When you call someone mental, that's not a good thing. 
and it's wrong. Um, based on our database of now 160,000 scans on people from 150 countries, we've really come to believe that most psychiatric problems are not mental health issues at all. Rather, they are brain health issues that steal your mind. And this one idea really changes everything. Get your brain right. Get the physical functioning of your brain right, and then your mind is better because the brain creates the mind. And very few people are talking about the impact of traumatic brain injury on mental health challenges, on a bad diet, on hypertension, diabetes, mold exposure. And we need to stop what we're doing because it's not working. Um, Tom Insel, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, said outcomes in psychiatry are no better than they were in the 1950s. And that should horrify us. And I believe what we need to do is change the <coughs> paradigm. Now, it doesn't mean psychology and psychotherapy is not important. Of course it is. But I think of it as optimize the hardware of your soul, your brain, and then program it. But too often, people try to program it, and when the hardware is not working right, they become demoralized, uh, they become depressed, and they stop seeking help. So we need a new paradigm. That's the idea behind the end of mental illness. To be clear, and I want people to understand this fully and completely. And so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. And I am playing devil's advocate because you know, because of conversations you and I have had both on and off camera, that I agree with what you're saying. But to play devil's advocate and ask a few questions, you're not saying that if somebody is showing what we now call schizophrenic behavior patterns or depression or panic disorders or anxiety or whatever, that that's not real, that those are not real disorders that people aren't really having disrupted lives from schizophrenia or depression or whatever. You're not saying that those are not real disorders, correct? Correct. They're completely real. But being schizophrenic or being depressed doesn't tell you one thing about why you're schizophrenic or why you're depressed. Think about it. Lincoln, and I'm a huge Lincoln fan, um, had severe depression during his life. He was actually suicidal in the winter of 1840. And how did his doctor diagnose him? So his doctor was Anson Henry. He talked to him. He looked at him. He looked for symptom clusters and then diagnosed and treated him. That's exactly how depression is being diagnosed today. Depression is a symptom like chest pain with many different causes. And if we don't understand what's causing it, that's why at Amen Clinics, we look at the brain. How do I know? Does your brain work too hard or not hard enough? Is it toxic or traumatic? Um, that we really need to change 
how we approach these things. It's not that bipolar disorder is not real. It's totally real and it'll ruin your life if you don't treat it properly. But we're not talking about why do you have it? And oh, by the way, if we get your brain right, your medication is going to work so much better. Well, two things that have always stuck out to me. One is that when we use psychometrics, people think we're measuring depression or anxiety or whatever, and that's absolutely not true. With psychometrics, what we're doing is we've given these test items to lots and lots of people, and when you take a test and you come back and score high for depression, we can't really say you're depressed. What we're saying is you have an awful lot in common with people that we have observed to be depressed. We gave these test items to a big population of people that we observed to be depressed and you answered the questions the way those people answered the questions. So when you take a psychometric test, we're basically comparing your answers to people that we've clinically observed to behave in a way that we've labeled as depressed. And so I think people misunderstand how psychological tests work. And then secondly, these drugs that we give people to treat schizophrenia, depression, bipolar, if you go look these drugs up and look in the section where it says agent of action, how it works, most of them it says unknown. It just says we've given these people and some people get better, but we don't know, which means they don't understand the relationship between the brain or the biochemistry and this symptom pattern. They just gave them these and some people got better, so they licensed the drug and gave it to them without really understanding how the brain or the body actually responded to them. That's scary to me. And that's common, right? That's how most people are diagnosed and treated without any biological information. And I love being a psychiatrist, but I belong to the only medical specialty that virtually never looks at the organ they treat. And they call me crazy. And I'm like, no, more information. You know, like Cameron, the kid you and I did together, he was dropped like 10 feet onto his head. And yes, he has mental health problems, but he's failed all these doctors. And because nobody's asking, well, why is he depressed? Well, why is he addicted? And if you don't look, you don't know. And then you come up with all sorts of crazy ideas on, you know, well, this is why people are depressed. It's because they have a serotonin deficiency. It's like, no, you broke his frontal lobe or his temporal lobe. Let's work on fixing that. And then he's likely to get much better. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. 
Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Well, you know, I have so many guests that come on the show and they say, well, I've brought my grown son or daughter here or my teenage son or daughter here. They're bipolar or ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder or whatever, and they're on this drug or that drug or this drug. And I always say, okay, wait a minute. Who gave you this diagnosis? Who prescribed these drugs? Because I know that the majority of psychotropic medications are not prescribed by psychiatrists after careful diagnosis and workups. Aren't most of these drugs prescribed by either physicians that aren't trained in psychiatry or prescribed by physicians' assistants or nurse practitioners or whoever? And if you look in the file, there's no diagnosis even written down. Who really is prescribing these drugs? And what kind of workup are they doing, if any, before they prescribe the drugs? So 85% of psychiatric medications are prescribed by non-psychiatric physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners in 10-minute office visits who do standard of care treatment 12% of the time. That is scary. And the big winner for the, for the pandemic is pharmaceutical companies. But depression has tripled just since March. It went from 8%, which was already up historically, um, to 27.8%. I mean, it's just horrifying. And people go to their doctor now on video conference and they're prescribed these medications on a wholesale basis without anyone talking to them about brain health, about things like diet and exercise and sleep and supplementation. Um, and it's just a mess. So, you know, I'm so grateful you give me the opportunity to talk about it because people trust you. Um, we just need a different paradigm. And that's what I argue in the end of mental illness. Um, if you wanna keep your brain healthy, or rescue it if it's headed to the dark place, we have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And we know what they are. So why not go after this as a brain health issue than as a mental health issue? Okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute. And I, I want to get into how you do this. But what we're saying here is that First off, when you say somebody has a mental illness, and I try to fight the stigma, I try to make this something that we can talk about, I try to push it to the front of the narrative, the conversation in American society, and destigmatize it. Maybe I've made it a little bit more acceptable or contributed to making it a little more acceptable in some small way. But we all know that still nobody, well, maybe in Hollywood it's different, but other than there, nobody is proud of going to a therapist. Nobody is proud to say they have a mental illness. 
And there is a stigma. If you have a bad knee, that's not the same as saying you're bipolar or have an anxiety disorder. There is a stigma associated with saying you have a mental illness, and that causes people to be slow to get help, if ever, and so they suffer with something their entire life because they don't want to be judged or labeled for having a mental illness. And what you're saying is that's been an issue all along because that wasn't the problem to begin with. Right. And, you know, being a psychiatrist for 40 years now, nobody really wants to see a psychiatrist. No one wants to be labeled as defective or abnormal, but everybody wants a better brain. So rather than we're going to go see the doctor because you're depressed, it's no, we're going to go see the doctor so that we're going to optimize your brain. And so everybody's in on give me a better brain, uh, but very few people are in on, oh, give me a mental illness and let me get excited about that. So why are neurologists, I mean, we've got this whole specialty of neurology, and I'm not talking about neurosurgeons, I'm talking about neurologists. Why is the field of neurology not more proactive in dealing with the very things that you're dealing with right here? As a specialty, why are neurologists not more active in this? Well, there's a subspecialty of neurology, behavioral neurology, that I like a lot. And I actually think of myself as a clinical neuroscientist, um, where I do a lot of brain optimization. And neurologists typically are dealing with strokes and seizures and headaches uh, and pain. And they... Often, I just remember my neurology rotation at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center where I did my residency. It's like, oh no, I don't really want to talk to people. I want to just sort of fix the problem and, and move on. But about a hundred years ago, psychiatry and neurology got divorced. So they used to be the same specialty. They were, yeah. Freud was a neurologist. And when they got divorced, neurologists got the brain and psychiatrists got the mind. And it was a bad divorce and psychiatrists lost right. because what we're dealing with are brain health issues. Now, that doesn't mean the mind's not important. When we evaluate you at Amen Clinics, we always think of these four big circles. So what's the biology? You know, the actual physical function of your brain but also your body, because if your gut's not right, your brain's not right. If your liver's not right, your brain's not right. If your heart's not right, your brain's not right. So there's the biology, but there's also a psychology, how you think. Um, we live in a society of undisciplined thinkers. Um, people believe every stupid thing they think, and they should learn how to challenge those thoughts. There's a social circle who you hang out with. You're much more likely to be violent if your father modeled that for you. Um, and there's a spiritual circle, which very few psychiatrists and psychologists touch, but it's ultimately Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning. It's like, why do you care? What is your deepest sense of meaning and purpose? And so getting all four of those circles healthy 
really helps you to be your best self. Let's talk about that a minute because you talk about this thing, all right, the end of mental illness, and you're saying you need to reframe mental health as brain health, that that changes everything because it can take away the stigma where nobody's ashamed to say, I've got to go see the neurologist, but they do feel shame, guilt, fear, judgment of saying, I'm going to go see the psychiatrist. And what you're saying here is, and I've said this so many times, that if you don't get the brain right, all the talking therapy in the world is like building a house on sand. You can talk, 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 talk. And if your brain's not right, you're going to get nowhere. I've said that within the last week to someone with PTSD, and particularly PTSD with TBI. If you don't get your brain right, all the anger management in the world, all the impulse control, changing the internal dialogue, blah, 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 that's not going to have a lasting effect if you don't get the brain right. And you're saying that you've got to start with the brain because that's the foundation. That doesn't mean that you then don't need to change your internal dialogue. It doesn't mean that you don't need to change your behavior patterns, the people you hang out with. It doesn't mean you might not need marital therapy. It doesn't mean you might not need help. It just means now you can optimize those things because your brain is healthy and optimized, and so you can get the most out of these other resources, correct? Correct. So think of it like hardware and software. And if the hardware of your computer is not working, it doesn't matter if you have good software programming. First thing is get the hardware right, the physical functioning of your brain, and then you can program it. So I think of psychotherapy that way. And network connections, do you think network connections will work like being married or being a good boss or being a good employee or being a good friend if the hardware is not working? Of course not. And yet, if you never look, you'll never know. And, you know, I think that's been one of my big innovations it's, of course you should look. If you don't look, you're flying blind. And what other medical doctor flies blind? Um, and, you know, one of the first things you learn is depression is like chest pain. And nobody gets the diagnosis of chest pain because it doesn't tell you what causes it or what to do for it. And because we don't look at the brain, we think, oh, depression is a serotonin deficiency take Lexapro or Prozac or Zoloft. And when you start looking at the brain, you realize just how ridiculous that is. There are many roads to depression, like there are many roads to chest pain. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I love imaging so much is it immediately decreases stigma. Um, it increases compliance because people want better brains. And my favorite thing is it increases forgiveness and compassion from families when they realize the person that is making them stressed is not because they want to, but because something is the matter with their brain. Okay, well, you talk about imaging, and you do something called SPECT. 
single photon emission computed tomography. Talk about what that is and what you look at, because you look at three things in particular. So describe what's a patient experience when they go through this imaging, and it's a nuclear medicine study, but talk about what a patient goes through when they do this. So SPECT looks at blood flow and activity. It's, it's a really simple procedure. The hardest part of the procedure is getting a tiny needle into a vein in their arm. We usually do it twice, once at rest, once when they do a concentration task. And so once we just have them sitting in a room resting, and then the second time we'll have them do a Connors continuous performance test. So we're getting their brain when they're trying to use it. And then after um, they're in the injection room, they'll lay on a camera table and takes about 20 minutes. We'll take a picture of where the medicine has gone in their brain. And it gives us an image of living brain tissue. Um, so we also do quantitative EEG where we look at the electrical activity in the brain. Uh, but I like SPECT because it gives us this beautiful 3D image of every area of their brain. And is it healthy, is it underactive, or is it overactive? And you'd mentioned PTSD and TBI, I published a study on 21,000 people showing we could separate those two disorders with very high levels of accuracy. Now, why is that important? Because the treatments are actually opposite of each other. With TBI or traumatic brain injury, we see hurt areas that are low in activity. And with PTSD, we see their emotional brain works too hard. So one, you want to calm the brain. The other, you want to stimulate the brain. And how do you really know um, unless you look ahead of time? Yeah, and so they're throwing medication at these people without knowing whether their brain needs to be calmed in an area or stimulated in an area. And so if it needs to be calmed, and they give them a brain stimulant, it's like throwing gas on a fire, and they send them back out there, and they're frenetic. They can't understand why they have a bad outcome. And how long does this take for a patient when they come in? How long does it take to get the workup? Well, when we work up a patient, um, we do a lot. We take really long histories to understand the story of your life. The scans themselves, start to finish, is about an hour. Uh, so it's pretty simple. Um, and then we do neuropsych assessments as well. Um, so we never make a diagnosis just on a scan, but we don't want to make a diagnosis without it because it's like we're going to miss a whole important piece of information. Right. When you do this, you and I have looked at brains that have been damaged from trauma, they've been damaged from toxicity, they've been certainly unloved across time. But the truth is, if somebody does come in and find out, oh, wow, yeah, my brain is not well, that's not a static situation, because in many or most situations, the brain can get better, the brain can heal, the brain can improve, 
by taking proper steps, correct? By putting the brain in a healing environment. So I did the big NFL study. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I don't think so. When the NFL was having trouble with the truth about traumatic brain injury in football, uh, I got to see Anthony Davis, the Hall of Fame running back from USC. Um, he's called the Notre Dame killer because in 1972, he scored six touchdowns against the University of Notre Dame. But he was having trouble with his memory, with his temper, and then he had periods of confusion. And when I scanned him at 54, his brain clearly was a traumatic brain injury, and it looked like he was 85. But five months later, his brain looked remarkably better. And then he and I went to the Retired Players Association and gave a presentation. And subsequently, I've scanned and treated 300 NFL players, high levels of damage. Stop lying about it. Playing football is a brain damaging sport. Brain is soft, skull is hard, skull has sharp bony ridges. You cannot have those level of intense over and over impact without damaging the brain. But the exciting part of my work with the NFL players, 80% of them get better when I put them on a rehabilitation program, which is so simple. We basically teach them about brain health, multiple vitamin with high doses of B6, B12, and folate, because that helps boost brain function, high dose fish oil, and then a brain boost that works in six different ways. And I published that study. Um, the exciting news that still very few people know is even if you have been bad to your brain, you can make it better and I can prove it. And that's what I get so excited. You remember we did the show with Gary Busey. I love Gary. And not only did he play football where he tried to break people's sternums, you know, the big breastbone. Right. But he had substance abuse problem. And they had a bad motorcycle accident. And then he had a tumor in his sinus that they radiated. So his brain was terrible. But by doing the right things, he's now got a show on Netflix. And, you know, he's able to work where before people just sort of think of him as a joke, even though he's an Oscar nominated actor for the Buddy Holly story. And it's just this message over and over again. Your brain can be better if you put it in a healing environment. And these are not radical things. You're saying B6, B12 with folic acid and fish oils, right? Yeah. And some other nutrients. I'm a, a fond of ginkgo and phosphatidylserine and N-acetylcysteine. And I always think when I use supplements, I use them in combinations because the brain doesn't get sick in one way. And so it's not going to get better in one way. That's why there's never going to be the medicine for Alzheimer's disease, because it's not one thing. There's 11 roads to Alzheimer's disease. We have to get on top of all of them. Right. It just seems to me that if people are really worrying, if they're worrying that they're experiencing depression, if they're worrying that they're losing touch with reality, if they're observing themselves to be exhibiting what they would consider 
psychiatric symptomatology of their being erratic in their relationships, if they're just doing things that are interfering with the pursuit of their healthy goals. So they're starting to get worried, like, am I starting to melt down here? Am I starting to really be unhealthy mentally? But they don't want to tell anybody. They're suffering this silently. They don't want to let on for fear of judgment from family or rejection from employment or whatever. I've talked to so many police officers that have said, I don't want to go to the employee assistance program because they say that that's confidential, but the fact that you even have a file there can cause you to not be promoted or not advance in your career in some way. But if they went to have their brain studied, their brain looked at, they could get answers that could save their life and their career and their happiness. And this is what I've been so anxious to talk to you about because I've had so many men and women tell me, yeah, Dr. Phil, I hear you about the stigma, but my career is on the line here. I'm in a position where I could be declared an impaired professional or I've just looked at the culture And if I do get the help you're talking about, it will absolutely torpedo my career. And this is why you're saying the end of mental illness increases compassion, gets rid of judgment, takes away the stigma, and it's a completely different paradigm than what we now live with. So at the risk of being politically incorrect, um, I trained I'm also a child psychiatrist and I did my child psychiatry training in Hawaii. And what many people don't know is that Hawaii is an Asian culture. Uh, Two thirds of the population is either Chinese or Japanese and Asian cultures are shame-based cultures. And so if someone's having a mental health problem, they don't want to bring shame to their family. And so our experience was families wouldn't come ask for help until the children were like floridly psychotic, that they waited until the last possible incident. But at the same time, those families would do anything to give their child an advantage. And so changing the discussion from mental illness to brain health leads people to go, oh, with a better brain, they're gonna do better in school. With a better brain, they're gonna have more friends. With a better brain, they're going to be happier. And so it helps decrease this idea of shame. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't act this way to, you know, I wonder if my brain's not firing right. And what I often say to the kids, because we see little kids and old people, it's like, you have a great brain. It's just not tuned right. Sort of like you have a Ferrari and the engine's like working way too hard. So we just need to tune it so you can be the best. And kids love that. They like, oh, make me better as opposed to fix me 
which they just don't want any part of. You have a comment in your book. You say since 1999, suicide has increased 33%, enough so that it's decreasing overall life expectancy. And during the same period of time, cancer has decreased 27%. To me, that speaks to the fact that the stigma is there. People are not asking for help when their actual quality of life has eroded to the point that they can't endure it anymore. But cancer, they get help because there's no stigma. So one's up a third, the other's down a third. And since the pandemic, I think suicide is up way more. I've just never seen anything like it. Um, and, and it's because we're working on the wrong paradigm. You know, why are we making such progress in cancer and heart disease and virtually every other aspect of medicine, but we're not making progress in psychiatry? And I think it's because the paradigm is wrong making diagnoses based on symptoms with no biological data. And uh, the end of mental illness is trying to like go, there's another way to do this. And we study our outcomes at Amen Clinics. So we've been doing it since 2011. If you come to see us, we actually enter you into a formal outcome study. And on average, patients have 4.2 diagnoses. They're complicated. They have um, failed 3.3 providers and five medications. And at the end of six months, if we treat them, 84% are better. No one's got those outcomes that publishes them. And it's because we get more information and we're decreasing stigma. But what I love, we increase compliance. People want better brains. And so like with my NFL group, they like being coached. And so they'll do the things knowing that in four months or six months later, I'm likely to rescan them and go, are we doing better? And uh, I just get so excited about that. And I mentioned to you when we were not um, on camera about this kid, Jose, who came to see me because of your show, like 10 years ago, you were doing a show on compulsive cheaters. And he cheated on his wife eight times in four years. His wife had a gun. She was going to kill him. And as part of the show, I got to scan him. He had a damaged brain from football, mixed martial arts, had terrible habits. And when we fixed his brain and seven months later, I scan us so much better, he's making better decisions. And, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, but ultimately a person's success in life is a sum of all the decisions they've made. And as you make better decisions, your wife doesn't want to kill you anymore. <laughs> You're more likely to not have to visit your children on the weekend. And he just graduated from nurse anesthetist school. I, I just so proud of him. With a better brain comes a better life. Absolutely. You improve problem recognition skills. You improve problem solving skills. You're less likely to get shot by your wife, you're less likely to get fired by your employer for impulsive behavior, poor decision-making, all of these things. And, you know, this is not a niche sort of thing. And I want to talk about this before we go, because approximately half of the people 
in the United States or experience some mental health issue at some point in their lives. And so you're not over here, you know, dealing with some little niche of society. We're talking about half the people in the United States are going to become symptomatic to the point that it interferes with their life. So you're talking about a major, major issue here. And then when we're talking about dealing with people's brains, we talk about football, for example. You know, you and I were talking about the fact that I played football in grade school, junior high, high school, college, and then have raced motocross and have ruined more than one helmet that my head was in, and they weren't probably the greatest helmets in the world. So I'm really curious what you're going to find when you work my brain up, which will probably explain a lot uh, to a lot of people that are wondering what the hell is he thinking. But let's talk about what can cause people to have an unhealthy brain. It's not just going through the windshield of a car. It's not just having a motorcycle accident. You said before that the brain's a soft organ inside a really hard skull. But first off, that hard skull has some very sharp bony ridges on the inside of the skull, correct? Yeah, God and I have had this chat that he should have put bumper guards on some of these sharp bony ridges. Um, mild traumatic brain injury is actually a major cause of mental health problems that nobody knows because nobody's looking. Um, but in the book, I have this mnemonic, Bright Minds, that just helps us know what are the things that hurt the brain. And the B is for blood flow. Low blood flow is the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease. So if you have any form of vascular disease or heart disease, it's bad for your brain. My grandfather had a heart attack. Um, and the sweetest, nicest, most loving person on the planet became depressed uh, after 60% of people have a heart attack, develop major depression within the next 18 months. So any blood flow problems, if you don't exercise, if you have hypertension, um, if you have erectile dysfunction, it likely means you have brain dysfunction because if you have blood flow problems anywhere, they're everywhere. The R is retirement and aging. The older we get, the less active our brain is and the more vulnerable we are. So the older we are, the more serious we need to be about brain health. You talk in there about stop learning. That's part of retirement and aging. You say where if you stop learning, where you stop exercising your brain, that's bad. People sometimes retire and they stop using their brain. They get lazy with their brain, and that's a bad factor. You need to keep mentally active if you retire. And doing new and different things. Like I read brain scans, and that's complicated, but I know how to do that. So I need to do something else, play the guitar, learn a language, um, travel, um, garden, I, I need to keep my brain always using different things. So people who, um, like teachers who are very language-based, they have a lot of connections in the front part of their brain. 
people who you know are mechanics, they have lots of connections in the back part of their brain. If you really want your brain to be healthy, doing all of those kinds of things is important. But new learning is a major strategy to keep you. Okay, good. I didn't want to gloss over that. If somebody, even if they're, maybe they have bad knees or ankles or something, so they can't be as active as they want, they can keep their brain active. They can learn new things, take up piano, do something where they have to challenge their brain in different ways. Then you say, I, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I is for inflammation. Major cause of depression and dementia, often due to a number of factors like having low omega-3 fatty acids in your blood. Like 97% of the population, uh, their omega-3 index is not optimal. So eating grilled or baked fish at least once a week, taking fish oil, is important. Having an unhealthy gut. I mean, there's a whole discussion about, you know, the brain gut connection. You have a hundred trillion bugs in your gut. And if they're not healthy because you eat mostly fast food, um, your mind will never be healthy. Or you don't take care of your gums. Gum disease is a major cause of inflammation and depression. So flossing, seeing the dentist on a regular basis is absolutely critical. Um, and there's simple tests like omega-3 index or C-reactive protein to know about the inflammation in your body. G is genetics, H is, so things run in families. But what I always say is genetic history is uh, not your destiny. Genes load the gun. It's what happens to us that pulls the trigger. That just means who can have a problem, not who will have a problem. It just means you need to be more aware. Yeah, Lisa Gibbons. You probably know my friend Lisa, whose yes. mother and grandmother died with Alzheimer's disease. And she came to see me when she was 51. And her brain was headed there. But knowing it and then having the strategies to prevent it, last year I scanned her again. Ten years later, her brain's fuller, fatter, healthier. And so, um, you know, I often say, if you knew a train was going to hit you, would you want to get out of the way? Because a lot of people go, oh, I don't want to know. It's like, no, you want to know so that you can get out of the way if that's at all possible. Yes. H is head trauma. And, um, you know, and with all the football you played in the other accidents, we should look at some point. But the exciting thing, like with my NFL players, is you can make it better if you do the right things. Um, T is toxins. And I don't know if you're as concerned as I am with marijuana is innocuous, but it's not innocuous when it comes to the brain. And I'm very concerned, you know, the idea that alcohol is a health food now decreases blood flow to the brain, marijuana. But then other things surprised me. Like I had no idea that general anesthesia can actually damage the brain. And there's a right. whole literature, if you go on pubmed.gov, that children who have general anesthesia have a higher incidence of learning problems. Adults who have general anesthesia have a higher incidence of dementia. It's like, I mean, when you need it, you need it. But at the same time, then we should be rehabilitating these brains. 
And then you'd brought up police officers. I'm actually doing a program with the Newport Beach Police Department, Change Your Brain, Change Your Police Department, one, to decrease stigma, but also it's a police officer or firefighter's decision-making that saves us. And I want their brains to be as healthy as possible um, so that they can help us. And with firefighters, toxins, they breathe them in all the time. You know, we have this fire in Orange County. We had the bad fires in California. Both you and I are breathing in this toxic air. It's terrible for brain function. Well, this head trauma and toxins, these are things that people that are listening and watching right now, I want them to think about because head trauma is not just major trauma of like going through a windshield or falling 10 feet onto a concrete floor. It can be small repetitive traumas like, you know, kids heading soccer balls just over and over. You do that a hundred times a week and these things can accumulate and it can be any number of things. And if we think back at the times in our lives where, you know, we fell on the ice and hit our head or, you know, we slipped and fell back and banged our head just as we hit the ground, these things have an effect. And if you check them and see that there was an impact, this can be helped. It can be changed. And marijuana is a toxin. And I'm shocked to see people passing laws and legalizing this. And of course, they don't understand the people that are our age that are passing these laws, the marijuana they were smoking 30, 40, 50 years ago because of agriculture advances, the marijuana of today is so much more potent than it was a generation ago, and particularly smoked by brains that are still forming until they're 25, 30, 35 years old, it is particularly problematic. So it is a toxin, and I hate that that's getting swept under the rug and ignored. Well, and you probably, on your show, you know, kids start smoking when they're teenagers and all of a sudden they're psychotic. It increases the risk of psychosis 450%. Now, true, that's probably for people who are genetically vulnerable, but you know, bathing the brain in toxins when it's trying to develop and it doesn't finish developing till 25, six, seven. Um, we just have to do a better job. We have a high school course called Brain Thrive by 25 that's in all 50 states, seven countries, where we teach kids to love and care for their brains. And invariably, there's a whole lesson on what to avoid. The 14-year-old boy raises his hand and he goes, but how can you have any fun? And we play a game with them called Who Has More Fun? The kid with the good brain or the kid with the bad brain? Who has more independence because their parents trust them? Who gets into the college they want to get into? Who gets the girl and gets to keep the girl because he doesn't act like an idiot? Um, it's the person with a good brain. And we have to change our mindset that if I'm healthy, oh, that means I'm boring. It's like, no, you get to do cool things um, yeah. with a better brain. Absolutely. 
Well, take us through minds right quick. So mind, the M in minds is mind storms. It's these abnormal electrical activity that you, just where you get these storms of anxiety or these storms of depression, temporal lobe abnormalities of all things helped with a ketogenic diet. Um, the I is immunity and infections. Who knew how prophetic that would be? But, right. you know, COVID affects your brain, Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr, herpes, toxoplasmosis, parasite from cats. Um, N is neurohormone disorders. And Phil, I have never seen of this rash epidemic of teenage boys with low testosterone. I think it's the toxins their parents are putting on their body as they lather them with lotions that have parabens and phthalates. D is the one I'm worried about most. It's diabetes. As blood sugar and weight go up, the function of people's brain goes down. I published three studies, the last one on 35,000 scans, there was literally a linear correlation. As your weight went up, the blood flow and activity of your brain went down across virtually the whole brain. It's horrifying. Um, I call it the dinosaur syndrome, big body, little brain. You're going to become extinct. We have to get this obesity crisis under control. Um, and then the S is sleep you get less than seven hours of sleep at night. You have lower overall blood flow to your brain, more bad decisions. And so I want to see psychiatry turn into a brain health specialty. Often you go to a drug treatment program or psychiatric hospital and they feed you in the morning donuts and cereal and orange juice, and they just have no clue that, oh, I should maybe feed the brain for it to be healthy rather than continue to poison it and perpetuate illness. Doc, we could talk for hours about this, and I want to tell everybody that the things that we've been through here, like reframing mental illness as brain health changes everything, is what we've been talking about here with how to create or eliminate mental illness, a bright minds approach. We just went through the 11 factors. I'm going to put those on the website so you can look at them because we've been talking about them and we've covered obviously an awful lot. And as I say, we could go on for hours here and then you would have brain damage because we would be talking so much you would go into brain lock. But, Doc, we've got to do this again and because there are sections we haven't even talked about here, particularly what parts of the brain are associated with what behaviors and functions so people can understand why they're doing some of the things that they may be doing. That's a whole other discussion we can have. But the book is The End of Mental Illness, How Neuroscience is Transforming Psychiatry and Helping Prevent or reverse a number of what we consider to be psychological or psychiatric disorders. And I have read it, I have studied it, and you absolutely have to get the book. It's not something that you'll read once. It's something that will become a manual for you living your life and loving your brain. And I promise you, it will change the quality of your life.
And it's already changed some of the things Robin and I are doing. And she said, I have to go and get my brain examined. And uh, she said, okay, that's it. You're going. So I'm caving in and coming to the Amen Clinic and getting a workup so you can uh, figure out what I need to do that I'm not doing. You both uh, have to come. I love doing couples. Uh, yeah. I love doing couples. Yeah, I definitely want you to do us both so uh, we can do this. We can say, see, I told you, I told you. No, we'll do it in great spirit. But this has been so informative. It's everything I expected it to be and more. I hope we can do this again. I would love to. I'm grateful to you for all the good you do in the world. And anything I can do to be helpful, I would be honored. Well, you always are helpful. And you've helped so many on our show. And whenever you're on, Dr. Phil, the message boards just light up with people talking about how clear and concise you are and how much you stimulate them. So we'll do this again. Doctor, thank you. Again, the book is The End of Mental Illness. Get it, find it, order it, study it. It's not a paperweight. You have to read it. You can't put it under your pillow and get it by osmosis, but it will change your life. The End of Mental Illness. Doctor, thank you. We'll do this again soon. Thank you. All right, so long. <laughs>